Let us continue our series in Luke's Gospel by turning once again to the ninth chapter of Luke. Now, over these past several weeks, we have seen the Lord Jesus perform a series of miracles in which he has displayed his wondrous authority. He calmed the storm, and there was the question, who is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? We then saw that he has authority over the demonic realm. We saw as well that he had authority and has authority over death and the raising of Jairus' daughter. We saw that he has authority to provide with the feeding of the 5,000. And then, of course, having shown his authority through these miracles, our Savior called upon his disciples to make confession of his name in light of who he is and what they have seen him do. In the midst of that, he has foretold his death, and he has called us to discipleship If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And now, having said that he will go to the cross, and having told us that we must daily as his disciples take up our cross and follow him, he shows something of the wonder of the age to come in the transfiguration to which we now come, Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we now come under the authority of your word to hear what you say to us. We would learn to live every moment under the authority of your word, that our lives not be determined by how we perceive circumstances or our feelings, but that our circumstances and feelings and attitudes and will be brought under the authority of what you teach in your own holy word. Root out from among us as your people any autonomous thinking. We are not laws unto ourselves, but help us to submit all of our thinking to what you teach in your holy word from beginning to end, your word without error. And help us to know, Father, that as we attempt to do this, there is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who enables us more and more to grow into conformity to the image of your own Son. May that be our passionate desire. May that be the passionate desire that pushes sin out of the heart and fills our minds and lives with Christ in its place. Father, for those who are among us today who do not know Christ, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be at work to show them the uniqueness of the Son of God and their need of this Savior, without whom we are lost, but through whom we are saved for time and for eternity. These things we ask and pray in the name of Christ, our exalted King. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand? Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 28. This is the Word of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. 
And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, a number of years ago, I heard a radio interview with a student, a young lady from Davidson College. She defined her essence as spiritual. She had been brought up in the Presbyterian Church, not a PCA church or an OPC church, but a mainline Presbyterian church. And then she had journeyed east. And after coming back, she now called herself a pluralist Christian. She blended Eastern mysticism with Christian worship, and she said that she could no longer assert that Christianity is the only way. Now, as we think about the correspondences between the New Testament world and our own, both were thoroughly pluralist. But Christians were not sent to the lions because they claimed that Christianity was one of many ways to God. What has always characterized the Christian faith is the insistence upon the uniqueness of Christ. And it is the uniqueness of Christ that we especially see in the transfiguration experience that we have read this morning in this narrative. So that uniqueness shines forth in this passage so remarkably. Let us begin, first of all, with a revelation of Jesus' uniqueness. A revelation of Jesus' uniqueness. He is unique in his person, and that is displayed here. In verse 28, we are told that he went up on the mountain. It is recorded also by Mark and Matthew. Probably the mountain was Horeb, but there are other options or possibilities. We don't know for sure. But put in this context with the two heavenly visitors, Moses received revelation from God on Mount Sinai, Elijah on Mount Horeb. Now the disciples on this mount see a greater than Moses and a greater than Elijah, who not only receives but gives revelation on the mount in this vision of God's glory. Christ's appearance also, we are told, changed in verse 29. Matthew and Mark use the term transfigured. That means to change in form or to be transformed. Appearance was altered. Luke literally reads, the aspect of his face was other. There was this great change in appearance. Something of the splendor of the age to come The power of the consummated kingdom is displayed 
in this narrative we have read. Verse 29 also stresses, did you notice, the brightness. And so we read that uh, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The glory of the God-man is shown to his disciples. How dare we put him in the category, on the level of Eastern mystics and mere philosophers. Christ shines with the brightness of the ancient of days, as we read in Daniel 7. He is the one who dwells in unapproachable light, of whom we read in 1 Timothy 6. You see here, the form of God is showing and shining through the form of a servant. The presence of God in Christ is being revealed to these three disciples. Verse 34 shows us the uniqueness of his person by mentioning the cloud. The cloud was associated with the exodus and with end-time glory. The basic idea of the cloud is that it is a manifestation of the presence of Almighty God. The presence of the true and the living God. The cloud also veils his awesome glory. What mortal could see it and live? But then there is a voice from heaven. We read in verse 35. When the father commends his son, he does so in the language of scripture. And so when we read in verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Jehovah, in revealing the uniqueness of the person of his son, combines Psalm 2-7 with Isaiah 42-1 with the passage that Pastor McDonald read this morning from Deuteronomy 18-15. Now, how's that for a high view of Scripture? God quoting his own word, using his own word, showing that he is the fulfillment of all that the sacred Scriptures had pointed And consider it is this eternal and beloved Son in whom he was well pleased that the Father gave for our sins. I really wish that I had the tongue of a seraph. When I speak of the uniqueness of Christ, I assure you, my heart is overwhelmed with the beauty, the wonder, the greatness, the glory of what it means that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, revealed here to these three disciples, is my Lord and Savior and yours. That he came into this world, that God himself so condescended in servanthood to save you by the shedding of his own blood. I wish I had language to express the wonder of these things. The response of the disciples, of course, in verse 34, we are told, is fear. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, because this is not simply a good teacher. This is not a moralizing philosopher. Look with these disciples, and behold, this is God the Son, and the glory that he had with the Father before ever the world was, and to which he would return. This is the uniqueness of the person of Christ. Now, around Christmas time, usually as I'm preaching John 1, I often like to quote a little line from Milne's commentary on John's gospel that seems to me very appropriate to be quoted here. 
Milne says this, if Jesus Christ shares the nature of God, we are called to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption. May I read that again? If Jesus, this Jesus, this Son of God, the brightness of his glory, showing forth in this transfiguration, if Jesus Christ shares the nature of God, we are called to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption. Is that your heart? Is that what you desire? Is that the longing of your soul? So his unique person also points in this passage to his unique work. Now we see his unique work in a variety of ways as well. First of all, because in verse 30, he talks with Moses and Elijah. Now why with Moses? Because he is about, Jesus is about, to inaugurate a second exodus. Why did he speak with Elijah? Because Elijah is regarded always in the Old Testament and as we come into the New as the forerunner through John the Baptist, as the forerunner of the end of time. So the whole event shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament revelation and he is the inaugurator of the age to come. Verse 31 actually uses the word exodus. Look at it appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. But the word in the Greek text is actually spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now this obviously refers to his death, but surely it refers to more than his death. Through his death and resurrection, God's people are led out of slavery. Jesus fulfills the entire typology of the exodus, He is the one who sets his people free, but it will come at great cost. Moses and Elijah were wilderness prophets who suffered rejection. And now in verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, the kingdom will come with the rejection of the suffering servant. Do you see him in glory that he had with the Father before the world was, shining in incomprehensible light? But now see what humiliation he will endure for our sakes. What condescension, what infinite, 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 infinite condescension, what infinite cost that this unique Son of God would pay the price and penalty of our sins once and for all by his shedding his blood on the cross. Now this was Christ. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, as we see him here, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
this unique son of God would come and do this unique work as the son of God of shedding his blood and being rejected and despised and bearing God's wrath in our place. And I ask, is there someone here that rejects him still? As did the Jews of old, as did the Pharisees, as did the scribes, as did the elders. Is there someone here who rejects him still? Keep your finger here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And notice how the writer of Hebrews puts this, because it is awesome to consider. In Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, the writer says, Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And of course, the point of the writer of Hebrews is, having heard the word, and perhaps even professed it, but not possessed it, having heard the word and rejected it, there is no other atonement. There is no other way your guilt can be removed. There is no other savior of sinners There is no one else to whom you may go for the removal of your guilt, for the forgiveness of your sins. Reject Christ and you reject salvation. Reject Christ and you reject all hope. Reject Christ and you lose all. Reject Christ and you lose rationality. There is only one fountain open for the forgiveness of sins, and that is Jesus Christ. And so do you see here his unique person? Do you also see an indication here of his unique work, his exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem? Do you see him as your Samson who with his mighty hands brought destruction down upon himself to save us, that he is the God of glory, the mediator in whose hands all authority has been given for the salvation of his people? And can you hear these things? I ask you. Can you hear these things and be cold in heart toward God? Can you hear these things and be cold to Christ? Can you hear these things and be indifferent to him? Are you cold? Are you hard? Are you indifferent? Do you not think that you should believe in Christ? And do you not think that you should tell others about him? Because he is great in his unique person and in his unique work. You know that old definition of evangelism? One beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. That's us. So we see the uniqueness of Christ. Unique person, unique work. But a unique person calls for a unique approach to life, doesn't it? Yes? Yes? Yes. So secondly, we see a unique response in this passage. Peter's response to the strange event, well, look at verses 32 and 33. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. 
let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. He thought the Feast of Booths was being fulfilled. That is, that the eternal Sabbath rest for God's people had arrived. Passing remark, by the way, passing remark. I'm sometimes asked by people, will we know one another in heaven? Well, Peter knew Moses, and he knew Elijah, and he had never met them before. And the time will come when we will be there and we will say, Master, it is good to be here. But that time was not, was not then. The awe of heaven was upon the disciples chosen to see the event, and Peter wanted to keep it. He wanted to leap right over the sufferings of Jesus to his glory. Now hold that in mind and look back at verse 22 of this chapter. You remember we saw it last week, what Jesus said? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And look ahead to verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. No, Peter, you cannot hold on to this moment of glory. It is not yet. Jesus the unique Son of God must suffer in his unique work. He must suffer because that is the penalty of sin. Jesus' mission will only be understood after his resurrection from the dead. So I ask you, what should the unique response of the believer be to this? What should our unique way of living be in response to this? Does this have anything to say to you and to me about the life that results from understanding from this passage and others the uniqueness of Jesus and the unique mission that he came to fulfill? And the answer to that is yes. The cross precedes the crown. Glory comes only after humiliation. The followers of Christ fellowship in Christ's suffering and conformity to his death. The servant is not above his master. The character of Jesus is drawn deep within our hearts when we suffer Christianly after the pattern of his suffering. 1 Peter 4.12, Romans 8.18, on and on we could go. The New Testament shows us this. Look at it this way. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches that we are adopted children of God on the basis of Scripture, and it says, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. You have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. But does our catechizing include as one of the indispensable benefits of Christ's atonement conformity to Christ's image by suffering with him? Is that in the equation? Is that in your life? Do you understand that to be true? As Richard Gaffin so put it, put it so well, until Christ returns, the comprehensive mode of our enjoying all those privileges of adopted sons is suffering with him. There are few truths which the church down through its history has been inclined to evade. There are few truths which the church can less afford to evade.
Only the Christian can live this way, joyful in suffering because in it he finds fellowship with his Lord. He actually tastes and sees that the Lord is good in the midst of his suffering life. It teaches us to embrace the life that God has given us as the one he has for us, not with stoic resignation, but with joy. Now, Dr. Gaffin is certainly right. There are few truths which Christians try more to evade than this truth that we must suffer as Christians in order to know the power of his resurrection life. But the Lord teaches us, and we are becoming joyful in suffering because we fellowship with our Lord, again, not stoic resignation, but transcendent glory follows the cross. Again, back in verses 23 and 24, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, this is the Christian life, people, this is it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You go your own way, you will lose it. Attempt autonomy, you will lose your life. You will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so let us not always dream for something else and miss God where we are. Stop dallying with everything that hinders your growth. Get rid of the boxes. If it doesn't make me happy, then I'll not stick with it. Then I'll not be faithful. Suffering, small and great, is suffused with the power of Christ's suffering for us and with the power of his resurrection. We find that life is now Christ-centered. And then we see self-centeredness more and more being put to death. Truly, the uniqueness of the Son of God calls for a unique approach to life. And that unique approach to life is less and less self-centeredness, more and more Christ-centeredness, and love and concern for others around me. But we also see not only the uniqueness of Christ in his person and work, we not only see the calling to a unique life, but we also see, thirdly, a unique message. And we find that unique message in verse 35. You'll find it in no philosophy, you'll find it in no world religion, only in Christ. Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And so out of the cloud, the Shekinah, where God is manifesting his very presence, he alludes to Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is the climax of revelation, Hebrews 1 teaches us. He is unique in his person, unique in his work, unique in his message. Now, do you remember that student from Davidson? That student who said, I can no longer say that Christianity is the only way, that Christ is the only way. When one says Hindus are Christians, they simply don't know it. 
or the faithful of all religions are worshiping the same God. We completely compromise the uniqueness of Christ. But that's not the only way to compromise the uniqueness of Christ. I compromise the uniqueness of Christ when I say, I believe him, but I won't follow him. I say, I'm saved, but I'm not going to live for him. When I say, I believe that he's the unique son of God that did this wondrous, unique work on the cross to save me from my sins, but there's this area of my life that's mine, it's not his. Only those who hold to the faith once delivered to the saints can speak credibly with mosques and temples now becoming such a large part of our landscape. But the only way in which we're going to speak credibly to those friends who need Christ is by lives of daily faith and daily repentance, taking up our cross, following him, and living for the glory that is to come. I am the Lord, there is no other. Now Jesus is the Jehovah that said that in Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, there is no other. Of him, therefore, the Father says, hear him, hear him. So how do we hear him today? Calvin says of the transfiguration, it was a temporary exhibition of his glory. He's right. And later the disciples will look back and they will reflect and they will say, who were we with? Who were we with on the mount when he was transfigured? And the resurrection that is anticipated by this experience will help them to understand who he was, who he is. Jesus stands at the center of of all eschatological expectation and hope. He is such a person, if I may paraphrase Denny, he is such a person that your entire universe must revolve around him. Jesus stands at the center of eschatological expectation and hope. If he's the center of the universe, he should be the center of my life and of yours. And in the end, they see, at the end of this chapter, they see, this verse, these verses, they see no one but Jesus alone. He is such a person that our entire universe must revolve around him. They don't see Moses anymore. They don't see Elijah. They see Jesus. God put his approval on his transcendent son. He is such a person that we must hear him. And such a person and wonderful person brings with him a unique and wonderful message. Now take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter 1 for a moment, because Peter in 2 Peter refers to his memory of this experience on the mount. In 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, he says this, 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about the transfiguration, what we've read this morning, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. In other words, hear the word. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, writing much later, looks back on this transfiguration, and he says, you want to hear him now? The way you hear it is by understanding that we have a more sure word of prophecy. That is to say, we saw him on the mount in light of the fact that the fulfiller of the word has come. The word is even more sure. Prophecy is even more deeply confirmed because of what we saw on the mount in his uniqueness and glory. And so Peter is saying, go to that word and hear Jesus in that word. Where do you hear in the midst of all of the confusing calls and noises of this world? Where do you hear the voice of God? Where do you hear the voice of Jesus? You hear him in the Bible. You hear him in his word. And so in the name of God, congregation, stand fast on this. Hear, submit, get rid of those boxes, arouse yourself in spiritual vigor. Hear him, God says of his son. Do not live in the irreverence of modern thought. Follow your Lord who said the scripture cannot be broken. Because our goal is not to adjust the Bible to our age, but to adjust the age to our Bible something more here just to remember there's the work of the Holy Spirit to help this happen in your life God being my helper I want to kill the tendency that we have to hear the word preached I mean the tendency in my life and to be used of the Lord to kill the tendency in your life the tendency that we have to hear the word on Sunday and forget it on Monday The tendency that we have to hear the word preached and do nothing with it. So do you hear him? Many competing voices, but they're all unworthy. Do you hear Jesus? In that area of life where you are now turning a deaf ear, will you hear him? In that relationship, will you hear him? In child rearing, will you hear him? in the way that you relate to your spouse or to your parent or to your child? Will you hear him in that business transaction? Will you hear him in those shady dealings to which you've been tempted? Will you hear him in that gossiping tongue? Will you hear him in what you watch and take in? Will you hear him In the coldness of your heart, will you now be warmed and hear him? Are we just playing games? Do we hear him when he says, he alone can save? Do we hear him when he says, his atonement is sufficient? 
that he is the only way to the Father. Do you hear him where, when he says, I love you, my people? Do you hear him when he says, I accept you through my sacrifice on the cross? Do you hear him when he says, through all of the suffering, you are becoming more like me, and there awaits you an undefiled inheritance that nothing and no one can take away from you? Do you hear him? And given verse 22 and 44, where Jesus speaks of his death, this text today principally means that three components should constantly be coming to your mind determining how you and I think. The cross, the resurrection, and Christ's return in glory. The transfiguration points to all of this and especially is a foretaste of that glory. And what glory it is. What glory. For God's people, what blessing. The transfiguration is but a sneak preview of what is to come for you. But for those outside of Christ, what a day of dread it will be when he comes in his glory. In that day, may no one here say, Scripture said, hear him. But I would not. The Father's voice said, hear him. But I would not. The gospel minister said, hear him. But I would not. But for those in that day, Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. A terror when we see something of Jesus' uniqueness, isn't it? A terror when we see something of the uniqueness of his person and work and are determined not to acknowledge his lordship. But for the believer, I really love verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Alone. Only the Lamb of God for them to contemplate. Only the Lamb of God for them to remember. Only Jesus. You know, I said in Vespers this last Wednesday, something I remember reading in uh, the works of John Owen in his first volume on Christology long ago. And I'm not quoting him, but essentially what Owen, the Puritans, Owen says is the more sublime and glorious are the things that we believe and dwell upon, the more we are changed into the image of God as we exercise faith upon those things. And the problem that many of us have is that we fill our minds with this low, groveling, unworthy junk when we should be filling our minds and our hearts in our everyday living with this high, wondrous, unique, exalted Jesus and all that comes with him. And Owen's point is, the more, the more you as a Christian dwell on those things, focus on him, the more you're going to be transformed into his image. Let me close with a beautiful observation of Alfred Edersheim, that great Jewish Christian New Testament scholar, who said, For us, the interest in this history lies not only in the past, it is in the present also, and in the future.
To all ages, it is like the vision of the bush burning in which was the presence of God. And it points us forward to that transformation of which that of Christ was the pledge. And when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, as of old the beacon fires lighted from hill to hill announced to them far away from Jerusalem the advent of solemn feast, so does the glory kindled on the Mount of Transfiguration shine through the darkness of the world and tell of the resurrection day. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.